Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Vershawn Young, host of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where authors of African American life, arts, culture, and sciences discuss their new books. Today, I'll be speaking with Jafari S. Allen, Assistant Professor of African American Studies and Anthropology at Yale University and author of the provocative new ethnography, Vinceremos, The Erotics of Black Self-Making in Cuba, published by Duke University Press this year, 2011. I'm sure you'll enjoy this lively interview and enjoy reading the book. Listen in. Hello, Jafari. Hi, Vishan. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. Today, we're speaking with Jafari S. Allen, Assistant Professor of African American Studies and Anthropology at Yale University, and author of a meticulously researched and exquisitely theorized ethnography that we're featuring today. It's called Vinceremos, The Erotics of Black Self-Making in Cuba. It's published by Duke University Press in 2011. Vinceremos, Alan explains in the opening pages, is a political expression, meaning we shall overcome. This certainly resonates with the black U.S. experience in the civil rights movement and, if we think about it, contemporary politics with such slogans as, yes, we can. Allen, however, minds the politics or interstitial terrain of gender, class, and sexuality, which makes this book a quite provocative read. I've read it and I recommend it to all of our listeners. So we're happy to have Jafari with us today. Jafari, would you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, first, thank you, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your, your very kind introduction. As you, as you mentioned, I'm, I teach in the departments of African American Studies and Anthropology at Yale, and I'm also uh, a faculty at the Women, and Gen- Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies and Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Trans Studies here at Yale. And <clears throat> those sort of... Uh, locations really, I think, express uh, who I am intellectually and where this, uh, where this book comes in. That is, that it is interdisciplinary and it is grounded in black feminist and uh, critical, uh, critical race theory. But also, um, as you mentioned, it is an ethnography, a critical ethnography. And so here I'm really concerned about uh, expressing uh, some of what I experienced on the ground with my respondents and friends in Cuba over the, the many years that I uh, researched uh, in Santiago and uh, mostly in Havana, Cuba. Mm-hmm. So how did you come to write this book? How did this project uh, come to you? Well, uh, this is a, uh, a, a huge uh, revision of my, my dissertation and my dissertation was an exploration of black masculinity 
in Cuba, or I should say black masculinities in Cuba. My first idea for a dissertation project was comparative masculinities between uh, Brazil, uh, Brazil, Cuba, and the U.S., and my advisor, Sherry Ortner, was, was smart enough to, uh, to tell me the first week of graduate school that I ought to just pick one. Uh, and by that time, I had already spent, uh, spent the summer in Cuba doing, doing a language program and had fallen in love with, with Cuba. And so the book comes out of uh, going back to Cuba to uh, re-engage, my, uh, re-engage my respondents and to think again about uh, how masculinity uh, intersected with, articulated to uh, larger, uh, larger things going on in Cuba. And I learned during uh, my dissertation defense uh, that, you know, what the dissertation was really about or what the book should be about. And so I really owe a great deal of thanks to Robin Kelly and Stephen, uh, Stephen Gregory and Sherry Ortner and Nadine Fernandez and uh, Carol Vance for telling me what the book was about. And, and I remember specifically Stephen saying uh, that the, this book is about the special period. And the special period in time, times of peace, of course, is that period in Cuban history right after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, in which uh, the, there were tremendous economic difficulties, but also, as I argue in the book, there were uh, tremendous uh, sort of moral and uh, effectual and all sorts of other changes on the ground that my respondents were going through in very small ways uh, that I attended to in my research for, for this book. And so that's the you know the, the the recent history of of the book, but it's a deeper history really, and, and goes back to uh, my upbringing uh, with a father who was always uh, always concerned to tell me about uh, the fact that there are black people all over the world, uh, and that we ought to be we ought to be concerned with and connected to. Those uh, those people all over the world, and he was especially interested in Cuba, as were a lot of uh, black people of his generation, because of the claims uh, that uh, Fidel Castro and the revolution had made about sort of solving the problem of racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Cuba represents uh, for many black people and for many people who uh, consider themselves with their their groups downtrodden or oppressed by, for example, <laughs> the U.S. state or multinational corporations, et cetera, represents opposition. And uh, I was fascinated by, uh, by Cuba because of uh, hearing stories from, from my father from when I was, I was very young. Mm-hmm. Before we get into talking about the particular chapters in the book, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about uh, some of the things that you open up so beautifully in the introduction, the way in which um, there's a set of contradictions about mm-hmm. um, some uh, uh, 
freedoms in, in Cuba that some black people experienced, but yet also held back. I mean, the, t- the very title, um, Vincent Amos sort of uh, uh, alludes to that, um, that, that still struggle. But I want to throw two other things out here right away, uh, that the set of contradictions and what that might um, yield for or help explain in a U.S. context as well. Hmm. And then um, uh, the other thing is that you're pushing a certain kind of boundary throughout this book when you talk about um, gender, when you privilege gender, when you do talk about sexuality, that that, that becomes very clear. Um, but in the beginning of the book, you, you, you state a reason why you foreground gender um, uh, and you say that it is the failure to perform the scripts, the strict scripts, in this case, masculinity um, and the attributes and rights um, that is itself classed and raced. And so that's that's pushing the boundaries, I think, of sexuality studies and queer studies um, a little bit, which you which you also talk about. So can you respond to those two things? Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad that those uh, that those. Uh those things come come out uh at least for you in in the introduction because it it really it really does I, i'm really trying to uh set for the reader what my intentions are and where i'm where i'm coming from here and i think that it, it may be one can say that it's pushing the boundaries to say uh to sort of i don't know that i privileged gender but but to talk about how important uh, gender is even when we think about sexuality. It's really perhaps um, a feminist sensibility that insists on, uh, or, or I would say a black feminist sensibility that insists on looking at the intersections of these of these positions, mm-hmm. right? And it is perhaps controversial in sexuality studies. Many uh, many sexuality scholars or scholars of sexualities. Uh, want to bracket sexuality as a a separate, discrete category of experience. Yet, uh, as an ethnographer, first I have to recognize that what my respondents uh, experienced and what I saw was something that that requires and and both and requires a sort of wait, wait, let's look more closely at what's happening on the ground before we, um, before we move to the space of, of bracketing sexuality in that way. And that is, and I argue in the book, that while uh, this notion of homophobia means one thing uh, in, in a U.S. context, or while, for example, uh, we find that... Uh, let me let me back up here and talk about the the law of dangerousness <laughs> and I, I think I, I talk about that later in, in the book mm-hmm. uh, and about these sort of public performances mm-hmm. of gender right so while in and we, we we find this in in various places in the Caribbean for example that uh, for example uh, buggery laws or laws Outlawing, uh, outlawing homosex in various uh, English-speaking uh, islands, and uh, for example, uh, in the Dominican Republic and in Cuba, homosex is not outlawed. 
And what I, what I heard from my respondents was that it's pretty well understood that boys experiment sexually with boys or have sex with boys. One of my respondents joked that uh, everyone on his block played sex uh, when, they were, uh, when they were young, and he just never grew out of it. Uh, but when he told me that story, uh, what, he, what he was recounting for me was the, the ways in which having sex with men was not, was not, the, uh, was not the scandal. The scandal was walking out in the street uh, and walking in a way where somebody might call you a marigold, uh, a fag, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. sitting in a way that was not appropriate, mm-hmm. or not, or or having a voice so high, or not uh, not being manly in various ways. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that uh, even in the context of of the U.S., that that is also something that we have to pay close attention to, that what in, in many cases what we are talking about in terms of the scandal of sexuality is really the scandal of, uh, the, the scandal of, of gender performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, trans, uh, transgender study scholars are beginning to, uh, be, beginning to show us this in really important and startling important and startling ways, but we need look no further than the sort of uh, the everyday uh, everyday examples of gay and lesbian culture and people in in popular culture mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to see that uh, this move toward normalcy, sort of a, a gay man or a lesbian who looks just like you and I, who acts just like you and I, uh, who just wants to get married just like you and I and have a white picket fence just like you and I. So it's, it's, it's again, about a particular sort of uh, uh, normalcy mm-hmm. um, that is not, not so much imagining what people are doing um, in the bedroom mm-hmm. or the living room or the kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciated that point um, in the book um, for slightly um, selfish reasons probably because um, – I, did, I didn't tell you in our pre-interview conversation that uh, I'm working on a, on a manuscript in which your manuscript, your book, um, helped illuminate some, some ideas uh, for me. And the title of it is, is um, Straight Black Queers, Gender mm-hmm. Anxiety and the American Dream. And, and just as an aside, um, in relation to what, what you were just saying, what I'm trying to do is shift the boundaries to pay attention to this very phenomenon by looking at um, ostensibly straight individuals who are um, read as um, gay, like Barack Obama, for instance, or Tyler Perry, um, and and what that means for the larger context of um, compulsory heterosexuality or compulsory homosexuality when it's raced. This right. this um, brings me to a, a question for you about something that you you make very explicit and you say that that um, race impacts the categories of gender and sexuality in very particular ways. Can you say more about that and how that informs the theorizing in the book? Right. One of the things just in in your case in, in, in your book talking about the U.S. it's important to think about what is it that makes uh, that makes these 
straight or ostensibly straight individuals seem kind of gay. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and in my in, in my experience in the U.S., because I haven't done this this research, but of course you can, we can we can see it through literature and and film and everyday everyday life that it has a lot to do with uh, it has a lot to do with class, the way someone speaks, etc. Right. So that if if you're called soft, right, soft means what does soft mean? Soft means that you speak in uh, you speak in standard American English. Mm-hmm. Soft means that you uh, that you stand in a particular way. You know, we know from Bourdieu that there are these notions of bodily hexis, the way that someone or habitus, the way that someone walks into a room, the way that someone sits, the way that someone looks at another person. All of this is being all of this is being read. All of this is information is coming at the same time mm-hmm. right and so we mm-hmm. can't separate we can't separate race from gender from from sexuality what we think of sexuality when we see someone when they walk in a room and in cuba this is uh this happens as well so for example um and <laughs> for example uh the last my last visit uh my last visit to cuba last november uh while i was on leave i was there for for an extended visit and uh, the la- I saw a friend who I hadn't seen in, in maybe two years, and um, he immediately he said, uh, uh, "I negron and negron <laughs> is a word that is not just negro, right? It is a big black man." Mm-hmm. And he said that to uh, to signify the fact that I had gained several pounds since the last time we uh, uh, we saw each other, but. That notion of Negron, of a big black man, comes with a number of a, a number of sexualized and historical uh, with with historical and sexual valence. Mm-hmm. Right. So to say big black man is not to say uh, big black man who uh, who studies anthropology. Right. Big black man comes with with other sorts of things that. We all understood, everyone in the room understood mm-hmm. uh, when when he said that, right? Mm-hmm. And so, to uh, to be read through a history of of being sexual chattel, of being uh, a, an unpaid worker, of being some of of a, a history of being disallowed. Uh, Participating in in higher education, right? A history of African religion that mm-hmm. is embodied and that is scary, perhaps, to those who uh, those who are are uninitiated. All of this um, goes into the way that that people uh, that people are read as as sexual as sexual beings. And as intellectual beings, and as revolutionaries, right? And so one of the one of the main questions for my respondents who were uh, who are who are now in their in, in their seventies, I mean, that one of the, one of the hard parts for people who were young at the the moment of the triumph of the revolution mm-hmm. in 1959 is how to be a revolutionary, how to be a new man. Who uh, uh, that new man being, uh, of course, uh, an atheist, and that new man being disciplined, and that new man uh, 
being someone who was going to defend the nation. And also uh, later on, uh, maybe toward the 70s with the, with the advent of the family code and understandings of, of gender that, that, sought to, uh, that sought to supplant a particular form of what people thought of as, as machismo, how to be a, a new man in terms of uh, being equitable, being uh, being an equitable partner with women. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you do that if the image, if the the controlling image of blackness is one of someone who is insolent, who is out dancing or in ceremony for hours? Or someone who is uh, whose body is uh, is represented as as always having sex or working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those same set of questions um, seem to come up when we think about uh, the the um, latter part of the civil rights movement and particularly you know the black power and black arts movement in the U.S. Absolutely. Are there resonances? There are there are absolutely resonances uh, resonances here, and this is why you know I think of I think of my work as a even though it is it is uh, it is based in Cuba and uh, this is a this is a, a work about Cuba. It is just as much a diasporic work because there are resonances all over the all over the world, mm-hmm. and one of the resonances is. That, the image, and Robin Kelly does a great job of, of talking about this in, in Race Rebels, of course, that during the, the latter part of the civil rights movement, the strategy was to show clean, unsexed, Christian, upstanding, uh, upstanding black mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I often, you know, I often, you know, ask my, my students, you know, what, show them pictures of of these these beautiful uh, these beautiful upstanding black people on the on protesting, you know, women in 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 hats and white gloves and mm-hmm. pumps, mm-hmm. walking for miles, mm-hmm. you know, on the Pettus Bridge, wearing a, a black suit and 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 uh, black suit and black tie, shine shoes, to face dogs. What work does that do? The work that it that it does and the work that it did. Was to present a an, an uber respectable subject. How can you deny rights to uh, to these respectable, upstanding subjects? Mm-hmm. We are not uh, we are we are not the uh, we are not the partying, juke joint, unemployed, bad black people uh, or colored people or whatever word that that they might use that you might imagine we are upstanding christians demanding our rights to um uh, to this piece of the the american pie mm-hmm. right. one, of, one of the things that that robin uh, points out though is that at the same time there were people who were too tired uh from being at the juke joint all night to get up and put on <laughs> put on a dress and a hat to go and they had other ways of resisting, right, right, um, which don't always get publicized. Mm-hmm. Which, which mm-hmm. his work, uh, which his work, and then the work of, of of Kathy Cohen, of course, tries to push us in the direction of looking at what people uh, who are not the ideal subjects 
of um, the, the ideal subjects for rights, uh, what they were doing and how they resist. And this is this is some of what what I try to do in in my work also. Yes, I was just getting ready to say that because that comes uh, through uh, exceedingly clear that, um, and I'm going to try to try to summarize it, and you um, correct me after I do this this reduction. Um, it seems that uh, some performances and some profiles are aligned with a set of um, a, a set of privileges that uh, have that were opened up um, for um, Afro-Cubans during a certain period of time. But then there were other um, hidden or um, subjugated uh, performances, which I'm going to call uh, queer after your use of the term, which is connected to, but also in some ways enlarged from um, sexuality. I think you have a footnote to this regard. Um, and that now uh, uh, seeking a larger freedom to reference another of your terms means looking at these and uh, subjugated positionalities and uh, seeing how they um, uh, challenge the um, hegemony that's still in place. Mm -hmm. Right. This this is one of the, you know, and that larger freedom I, I, I borrowed from Kofi Annan. Um, and the reason I, I use that term is that it seemed to me, uh, listening to my respondents and watching watching what was happening what was happening in the moment and reading back through his, uh, through Cuban history, is that at this moment Cubans, of course. Uh, Enjoy uh, enjoy free education, postgraduate education from preschool to postgraduate. They enjoy healthcare. They enjoy you know, a lot of a lot of things that many people around the world would would really want. Now the contradiction we talked about contradictions before mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. that there are tremendous limits placed on placed on each of these uh, since have been since the uh, since the special period, my colleague uh, Sean Brotherton writes about the medical uh, 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 the med medical establishment in Cuba, and one of the things that's very easy to see, for example, and you know, I saw this up close going to uh, doctor's appointments with some of my respondents and friends, is that even though uh, even though the ratio of doctors to uh, to patients in Cuba is 20 to 1, which is which is the the best ratio any, anywhere in the uh, anywhere in the Americas? Once you get there, there may not be there may not be or likely there's likely uh, it's likely that there won't be adequate medicine for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you go down the road to a hospital where foreigners, including people from the U.S., are going for cutting edge treatments for for cancer, for example, uh, those places are really very well outfitted. And so again, you know, here we're back to the the contradiction um, that you that you mentioned earlier. But in terms of a, of a larger freedom, what uh, what my respondents uh, seem to be looking for and asking for is not not only uh, the economic rights that Cubans have and the social rights that uh, that 
North Americans are seem to enjoy that is freedom of expression and freedom of uh, freedom of association. You know, to join groups, have organizations, to say whatever you say whatever you want in any medium you like. Uh, they want both, and they want uh, they want the full expression of of their of of their humanity. Mm-hmm. Which is something that we see in Marx and Engels, for example, and we also see and uh, we also see in the liberal uh, the liberal philosophies of 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 the United States um, and even before that in, in Locke and Rousseau, et cetera. Right. Mm-hmm. So it is not a matter of uh, what people can simplistic sometimes simplistically see as a communist or a capitalist. Sort of, um, uh, sort of dichotomy. Uh, people are saying in this current moment that there's there's no reason that it can't be an and both situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sort of theoretically, this and both is is you know, very related for me to uh, to black feminism, which uh, comes at a time or emerges at a time in the late '70s and early '80s. Um, in, in which the movements of the U.S., uh, the, the movements that is uh, black power movement, civil rights movement, uh, the women's, uh, women's liberation movement, seem to be at that time either winding down or in serious trouble or had already failed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was a moment in which uh, these uh, theorists and artists and activists uh, Imagine something more than what was uh, than what was being offered. Mm-hmm. And here again, we go back to my title, Venceremos. That Venceremos for Cubans is um, is expressed with an exclamation point always. Mm-hmm. Venceremos, we will win. We will overcome. Right. Um, and at this point, there is um, <laughs> there is a serious question about how we'll overcome or whether we will even overcome. And so in sort of playing with, uh, with Spanish grammar and punctuation, my title has both an exclamation point uh, at the, in the front, um, as is the standard, but at the end there is a question mark. Uh-huh. That is that there's this and both that the vision for a larger freedom says yes we must win that is we because winning means full recognition of of humanity right mm-hmm. and then the question mark says <laughs> question mark questions how this will this will work mm-hmm. right and it, it, this title for me even though you know it it, it, it it's always uh, a point of discussion which i think is which i, I think is great um but I always think back to Audre Lorde's uh, the end of her uh, age, race, class, and sex women re- redefining difference. Mm-hmm. When I think of this and both in this question, and 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 that is when she says um, she's uh, we're at the edge of each other's battles, and if we lose, someday women's blood will congeal upon a dead planet. Right. So. That question of losing, if we don't win, that's not a for my respondents, uh, 
and and friends in Cuba. That's that's not a that's not a possibility. Mm-hmm. That is this this con, this losing means going back to the battle days. Means not having this recognition of full humanity. But the real venceremos, the real we will win, um, goes back to the end of 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 this this piece where she says, if we win, there's no telling. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. so we don't we don't mm-hmm. really know what that looks like. We seek beyond history, she says, for a new and more possible meeting, mm-hmm. which seems to me to really resonate with uh, with with revolutionary revolutionary rhetorics in Cuba, and the work of uh, of Cuban Cuban poets like Nancy Morejon and and Nicolas Guillén, uh, and the work of hip hop uh, performance artists like Las Cruzas, right who are envisioning something that uh, that Fidel et al. Uh, did not imagine. That is something beyond that, which I think, you know, if I could sit and talk to Fidel and Raul, et cetera, that they would agree that that's part of, part of the revolutionary struggle is that at some point the vision becomes wider. Mm-hmm. What is, for you the primary uh, point or set of points that you want uh, readers to get from your book? That's the gotcha question, right? <laughs> That's the question that, uh, that should, have been, should have been really glaringly obvious in the introduction that I, that I, I don't think I made glaringly obvious. Um, I think that... Uh, that there are a couple, and they're on a couple of levels. One is on a sort of an academic, uh, scholarly level, and I think that I have a, a section that I call sort of scholarly minefields uh, in the introduction that talks about um, the fact that in order to do this work, um, I've had to uh, see it now. It's called scholarly crossroads, scholarly crossroads, and political minefields. So. Um, one of the interventions is around interdisciplinary scholarship, mm-hmm. uh, and th- this book tries to make interventions in a lot of in a lot of scholarly fields. And I used to joke with people that this this book would uh, piss off just about everybody, right? <laughs> because on on in some levels uh, it says to Latin Americanists, uh, look. You've not considered uh, you, you've you've not cons- not considered uh, blackness in Latin America adequately, and of course this is you know, uh, with exception to the fabulous work that has that has come out very recently, uh, but still under yeah. under theorized still this reproduction of a mestizo subject constantly in this work, and also looking to um, looking to Cuban to Cuban studies to say that there is um, there is a world to discover beyond the sort of uh, facile arguments about whether Fidel is or is not the devil or whether or not uh, whether or not Cuba has whether or not Cuba has cured racism right mm-hmm. that that there that there's a lot more to discover and that we ought to uh, uh, we ought to ought to engage this in a really serious way, with, without these sort of skirmishes between um, on either sides of either side of the of the Florida Straits. 
and to say to to black studies, uh, you know, following a lot of uh, important folks who've done work in black queer studies, that um, one of the one of the key ways to uh, to continue and expand the project of black studies, diaspora studies, African American studies, however people want to Africana studies, however they want to configure this, is is to take seriously uh, categories of deviance that include uh, that include queerness, that include people who are not the sort of ideal, um, desexed, clean, respectable mm-hmm. subjects, right? Mm-hmm. And this is an argument, of course, that Kathy Cohen has made in her deviance as, as resistance. But I want you know want to push this uh, push this forward here in this way. And another one is is around the the import of looking uh, looking really closely at what uh, what black resistance is. What does it mean to resist? Uh, and what are the various what are the various forms of this? Right? Lots of lots of scholars have done have done work on this in a theoretical way. But I'd like to I'd like to push and invite us to do more work on this that, uh, with on the ground uh, on the ground research to see what people are doing in their in their daily in their daily lives. And then another one of the interventions I think is also about um, re-examining in anthropology, for example, re-examining the uh, the gifts right that were that were brought to anthropology in the in the 80s that is around reflexive work around work that insists that we not write ethnographies as, as if we are uh, flies on the wall mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. omniscient you know omniscient seers right that uh, work that does not center the author but that uh, that lets the readers see perhaps ways in which the author is complicit in meaning making on the ground, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and or you know following the decolonizing anthropology uh, move. And decolonizing anthropology is a, a very important collection uh, edited by Faye, anthropologist Faye Harrison that pushed us also to recognize the ways in which Black anthropologists. Have a very particular and important role to play in uh, in the new anthropology. And one of the things that that I argue in this book, it's not explicitly argued, but I think it's it's argued through the way that I write the ethnography, is that there's no way that I could have um, could have had access to the places and people that I had access to, and the stories and the the feeling that we created together. If I were you know, sort of differently configured. Right? Mm-hmm. That all mm-hmm. of us as, as ethnographers, uh, we do our work with our bodies, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, if we want to know, um, if we, we we want to know something, then it's important that we send a variety of people with a variety of experiences and a way ways of experiencing what happens on the ground, uh, who are recognized by people on the ground in various ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things in terms of Latin American uh, work on sexuality in Latin America that, that I discovered that I don't write in the book, which is sort of, um, I think, perhaps implicit and 
and between the lines is that you know being uh, being a twenty something uh, black man, a uh, gay black man among twenty something um, gay black and other men in Cuba uh, meant that I had access to spaces and people and conversations that I would not have today, for example, even, you know, a couple of years. <laughs> I won't tell, you know, mm-hmm. tell my, how terribly old I am, but a couple of years after, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly different from uh, the experience of a, of a 24-year-old uh, or 27-year-old black man uh, in Cuba talking about sex uh, to another 20-something-year-old black man is very different from having a 50-year-old white man who lives in a beautiful apartment somewhere on the other on the other side of town talking to for example uh sex workers about sex work. And of course in your in your in your monograph it isn't only men that that you describe yeah. and talk about um you you do talk about uh women as well. Yes, one of the, one of the things it was very important to me uh in terms of doing the the research for the new research for the book outside of the, the dissertation uh, to go back and talk to uh, talk to more of the women that I had uh, developed developed relationships with, and to have the book be about uh, women and women with women and women with men and men with men and men with women and mm-hmm. various recombinant uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> recombinant groups of that, and so uh, I do try to. Um, I do try to give a uh, to give a broad sort of view of what's happening on the ground with these groups of people that that I'm dealing with, and this is you know, there's a, one of the, the chapters in which I talk about uh, these nascent parties of uh, uh, women's parties is that I was uh, my access to that party um, was facilitated by my friendship with lesbians. Mm-hmm. Um, and the party that I talk about specifically in the book is one in which uh, I was one of maybe three men with I don't know maybe 60 women uh, or more at the uh, at the t- at that time, mm-hmm. right? Um, but at the same time, if uh, if for example uh, you know a colleague you know a colleague who was also a, a woman or who um, who is also a lesbian might have a very different, or certainly will have a very different entree to that um, to that scene. Mm-hmm. And um, since we've since we've uh, uh, crept into the particularities, uh, would you mind reading a, a passage for us? Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll read that. I'll read that piece about the uh, about the, the party, um, and the section the section is named after. There are throughout the book. Uh, uh, references to, to the music um, of that moment uh, that we were listening to and, and which you know I continue to listen to and so this section is called you know you know me which is um, unlike no other which is a song by uh, by a popular a popular uh, Chilenga, uh, timba band called uh, bambaleo uh, excuse me I had never before been to this section of Havana which sits just beyond Miramar, where avenues widen and homes seem no worse for the revolutionary wear. The collective taxi I was riding in with Yanidis 
stopped a few blocks away from her friend Marilisa's home, and we carefully extricated ourselves from the crowded Chevy full of Cubans on their way to visit family members or to do other business on this late Sunday afternoon. We, or I, had thought of splurging on a tourist taxi since my first trip to the women's party was a special occasion. But Yanidis usually preferred to use peso-friendly Cuban transportation, even though it was often slow and always crowded. In my case, it was much... In any case, it was much cheaper to ride in the collective taxi where we listened to the hushed conversations and occasional raucous, entertaining banter, especially on longer trips or when the driver was feeling particularly gregarious. I kept my comments to a minimum since, after all, I was passing as Cuban. Yanidis and her friends agreed that rolling up in a taxi was not very respectful of Mylisa since the interest of her neighbors would certainly be piqued by a number of taxis arriving on a late Sunday afternoon. To be discreet, therefore, my crew thought it would be best to walk the last few blocks to her place. Still, I wondered what the neighbors would think of the fact that they had not been invited to the party and that all but a few of the guests were women. This party, five years before the advent of the popular Fiesta de Lila and Milagros, or the Fiesta de Humo, or the Fiesta de Barbua, seems now, years later, to have been a kind of dry run for the women's parties that have become very popular. Indeed, they have even undercut the popularity of the men's parties, since they are often closer to the city and therefore more economical for Cubans to attend. Of course, like the 20 peso parties, the venue changes each time, with those in the know using a telephone number circulated among friends in order to get the address. We ascended the stairs to be greeted by a striking woman whose long, fitted dress and short cropped hair made me think of Vanya from the timber band Bambaleo. <laughs> As we entered the room, Isaac Delgado's El Plegun de Chocolate was blasting from one small floor speaker, and the dance floor was alive. Five or six couples were twirling, undulating, and laughing. Some sang along with the coro, Tengo el chocolate party. At the center of the floor, a circle of women had captured everyone's attention with their hip shakes and shudders. The gorgeous Vanya lookalike at the door was Marlisa's girlfriend at the moment, and it was she who had organized the event and now collected the entry fee and warmly greeted everyone at the door. Somewhere between what people were used to seeing as feminine and what they expect of Butch, she stood, confidently, apparently taking particular joy in multitasking. She sang the coro to the song, shifted her shoulders, shook and rolled her hips, folded the money, smiled and chatted up the guests. In that two-story home on the outskirts of Havana, in this room with stripped floors and very little furniture, we witnessed a party alive and pulsing with loud music, good food, and beautiful black women in various combinations of dress, complexions, hairstyles, and economic backgrounds. Like were rules in Cuba for women's party wear, some wore it in bandeau tops with high-waisted shorts, jeans, or short skirts, and others in shifts that grazed or passionately embraced their bodies. But most no matter what the style, wore it as if it were makeup, an application of color over the skin. It served as more than mere covering or clothing. Flowered polyester or even cotton shifts and sleeveless shirts were worn by the more modest, with a leotard or tights underneath. At this party, distinctions between butch and femme seemed less apparent at first, at least to me, than those between class groups. Of course, I was far from the intended audience of the women present. Still, the women drinking beer out of bottles and cans, talking the most and the loudest, and wearing pants, collared shirts, and sneakers, 
Oxford shoes or hiking boots made their butch presence felt. A few could afford to accessorize liberally, and others, like the vast majority of Cubans, had to keep a basic repertoire of one pair of shoes for going out and something to wear for every day, and one good outfit for very special parties and other occasions, which was handled with great care. One party goer told me that it would therefore be foolish for a woman, no matter how butch she was, to use her meager resources to buy things that she would wear only to these parties. The fiesta seemed to intensify when the DJ played Yo No Me Parezco A Nadie, I Like No Other. The title is more than apt. Here at the party, a long woman with long curly hair and small stud earrings pulls another party guest onto the dance floor, and the two of them get their life. The first woman's footwork, stomping each step in her rounded toe hiking boots, and her manner of staring off seriously into the distance as she leads and spins her partner, betrays the flirty femme shirt she wears, tellingly worn oversized and buttoned over a tight leotard-like t-shirt. For her part, the other woman moves wherever her partner will have her move, smiling and laughing as the vueltas get faster and change direction. First three to the left, then four to the right, to the side, then under the arm, a move that was pulled off elegantly even though the dance lead was a few inches shorter than her partner. As the typical timber break comes, all horns blaring and piano banging at the same time, until the timbales and clave change beat again, the long-haired woman lets go of her partner's hand to step up close to her. She shudder shakes as the other woman rolls her waist with her hands on her hips, moving up and down with her legs astride, toes nearly on point in the flowered Chinese slippers that were so popular then. Rounded toe boots are planted firmly, shoulder length apart. As Vanya sings the command, entonces empujalo, so push it, arms go up and fists are shoulder height. The long-haired woman's shoulders are stiff as her chest, stomach, and ass shake and shudder powerfully. The coro begins, hi-hat strike, and her partner holds on, closer. Slowing her balletic grind in half-time of the clave, she is syncopated with the piano. The party goes up, a room full of women swoon. Finally, a smile comes from the long-haired mulata who has seemingly commanded this so well. She's obviously enthralled by the graceful femme. She's got her now, my friend Demora says. Pretty flowered slippers perfectly positioned for plie, the femme rolls up to her partner's betrayed, delicate blouse, down those loose-fitting jeans, putting her hands tentatively on her partner's thighs, then up again, lets them rest on her shoulders and whispers something in her studded ear. The music continues and they move steadily, step, stomp, one, two, three, turn, roll, four, five, six. The stomping woman tucks in her blouse come jersey and rolls the cap sleeves into her undershirt, smile, three, four, stomp, step, one, two, turn. The new intimate friend of the now tucked woman takes her partner's long curly hair, moves it, and ties it in a makeshift bun at the nape of her neck. Ay, my friend Dolores says, <laughs> rapidly snapping her fingers in the air. Imagínate eso, eso sí. Imagine that, it's like that. And everyone in our corner, standing close to the DJ, changing a stack of burned or pirated CDs on a makeshift table, giggles. Perhaps as a joke, the DJ switches unceremoniously to Los Bambas, Este te pone la cabeza mala, this will make your head bad, or make you crazy. And then the redressed dancer laughs innocently. We finally see her teeth as she opens her mouth wide, 
then a bit shy, whispers something to a partner and takes her off to a corner where they stayed for much of the night between repeat performances. Dance is serious play. Cubans take learning how to dance and express oneself with another person on the dance floor as an important matter, though many of my respondents would disagree that it is learned at all. The courting dance at this party, a sort of butch femme pas de deux, did not go unnoticed by the admiring crowd. The initial and apparent success of the dance floor icebreaker challenged and emboldened other women in the room, some who looked butch and others who did not. Some led, some followed, and others did neither. Sitting there in a suburb of Havana, watching and trying to be unassuming, mostly unsuccessfully as one of only a few men and one of the people entranced by the ballet to which we were treated, I thought of Audrey and Africati in a brick-framed house in Queens. Mm. Quote, dancing with her, I felt who I was and where my body was going, and that feeling was more important to me than any lead or follow. Mm. In making friends in spaces like this one in the life, wet pouring, horns blaring, and bodies moving, one can begin to melt away the thick carapace of learned alienation from our desires and from each other. It is a catalyst for the creation of community. Very beautiful. You know, you have the craft of a novelist. Well, thank you. That that, that really means uh, really means a, a lot to me. And uh, I think one of the the other one of the uh, the points that I that I that I'm trying to make. I don't know that I'm trying to make the point, but just doing my work with the with the voices and the training that I've received, <clears throat> this is very important. That is that, you know, when I'm writing and when I'm thinking, the, the theorists that I'm responding to are, are Audre Lorde and they are then Toni Morrison mm-hmm. and Tony Caden Barra and James Baldwin and Marlon Riggs mm-hmm. and Sylvester, you know, and Larry Levan. That is that the theorists that I'm referring to are not all those that are that are approved in the academy, but these are the people who have, I think, most incisively theorized these moments of becoming, mm-hmm. or who have shown us how specifically black people and queer people and poor people have um, have become and are in this this movement. And a lot of this comes from uh, from from poetry. Um, and from uh, and from creative writing. I mean, mm-hmm. the people that I that I talk to, you know, on a daily basis are people like Marvin K. White, who is <clears throat> for me the inheritor <clears throat> of of the the mantle that that Essex Hemphill left for us, right? Um, and and uh, T. R. E. Jones, who is a friend from way back when, when we were at Spelman. I said that again, we were at Spelman. I was at Morehouse, not at Spelman, even though I did try to, <laughs> I did try to transfer, uh, and uh, Dr. Cole was not having that. Uh, but that is that, um, you know, this is, I think, um, uh, it, it, is in, it is a book of, it's an ethnography, it's a book mm-hmm. of anthropology, but this yes. is an African-Americanist work. Um, and as African-Americanists, we are... Um, we are grounded in this um, in this discipline that tacks back and forth between uh, between disciplines yes. um, and between forms. And you know, one of the highest compliments that I can get is to um, is is to be told that that there's a that you can hear some 
you can hear some of that in there, right? That you can you can hear the fact that that I'm I'm reading uh, I'm, I'm I'm reading Orgy Lord, and this this piece is is very much an homage to the beginning of uh, to to, uh, to the Africati portion of her Zami, mm-hmm. um, and there mm-hmm. are other other pieces where you'll well, you'll hear where I have shamelessly, um, <laughs> I've, I've shamelessly not ripped off because it is attributed, but uh, shamelessly copied my friend Sharon Bridge for. Mm-hmm. Right, it's mm-hmm. it's it's in there because it has to be. Right? <laughs> yeah, you use the the one of the phrases when she says uh, a whole lot of shit is liable to happen. <laughs> yeah, and that is, you know, Sharon and I had a long discuss, a long discussion about that because of this, this moment of how do we how do we theorize these spaces in the life um, that are not only theoretical spaces or spiritual, but literal places where people end up mm-hmm. that are queer. Mm-hmm. And, and this goes back to your, this, this notion of queer and, and queer straight, that queer can be that is the juke joint, this place that she imagines in, in, her, wor- in her work is a place where um, is a place where there is sexual intrigue with people who are ver- gendered variously and may have sex with people in various recombinant groups of who's having sex with whom, depending upon. And she says um, there are there are men's, women's, mm-hmm. some who are both, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some who are neither. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That to me is a, an incisive, <laughs> an incisive theoretical statement. Right. Right. And this is a space, she says, where a whole lot of shit is liable to happen. Yeah. That is, that this is a space of people who have been, who have been hurt and disallowed, for whom there is no, uh, there is no real home, and then making their home in places where there's liquor, <laughs> and there's music, and there is a feeling of at least momentary belonging, conditional belonging, right? Um, and... These are spaces also where there's a lot of uh, perhaps illegal stuff happening and even some illegal stuff for even the way people are dressed, right? And we could think of times in, in the U.S., for example, when uh, – or even Stonewall, right? In New York, uh, in New York in the 60s and 70s and before, uh, you had to be wearing at least three appropriate uh, – uh, three pieces of attire appropriate to – uh, to your assigned sex, mm. right? And so, the spaces where someone, uh, someone who is different, who is a gender insurgent, goes is automatically a space of illegality just because of the way that they're dressed. Right. 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 So a whole lot of shit is liable to happen. The police are liable to come, or this is a liable. This is a place where the police may not come if something goes on goes on, and you actually need them. Right. Um. And we don't have, um, you know, those of us who are working on 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 Black queer studies have begun to do uh, to do this work to investigate this, but um, looking at you know our predecessors, the people who have done this work are uh, the people who have done this work are poets and novelists and activists and filmmakers and visual artists. Right. right. You know, we're running out of time, and there's so many more questions that I have for you. I, I, we're just going to have to uh, have a time where I just call you up and, and chat, <laughs> just Let, chat with that. you. Um, I I wanted to ask and get you to talk about one of the most fascinating um, subjects um, in the book, um, for me at least, uh, which was Octavio. 
Uh, Octavia, and, yes. And 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 his um, female name, uh, Lily. Lily. Mm-hmm. Lily. Yeah, that's very fascinating, and the relationship, uh, you know, in the community, and and how that gets played out, especially when he comes uh, out, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. with with the dress on the street. But since the cover is the first thing that readers encounter, can you tell us about this really rich picture um, on the the front cover? I mean, it's completely fascinating. Absolutely. You know, know, the the adage is that you can't judge a book by its cover, but I really wouldn't mind. (laughs) (laughs) I really would not mind at all. If people judge this book by this, this, this gorgeous cover by my friend, Renee Pena, Mm -hmm. um, and I have to say that this is, a, I say in the acknowledgments that it was a dream come true. In 1998, uh, my first trip to, uh, to Cuba in 1998, I went to, a, uh, uh, to visit the Ludwigs Foundation, which is uh, uh, one of the very few, at that point, um, the only independent gallery uh, on the island. And um, I saw... Uh, a show with Rene Pena, and this uh, this photograph was there. He's one of the most uh, important uh, contemporary Cuban artists, and uh, he most of his photographs he stages um, his own body, and so that's Rene Pena uh, in costume in, uh, ah, in the shot. Okay. And I think that um, just. Uh, looking at this photo and sort of meditating on it from 1998 really influenced me in a number of ways. And, you know, uh, Renee and I had not talked very much about, about his intention. And I think that that's probably good because, you know, I, I like my, <laughs> like my, my reading of this, that he's sitting there in sort of white face, sort of blue face. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's sitting with a cup of tea and, in a pose that I would describe as slightly effeminate or mm-hmm. effeminate. And he's gazing on a table um, where there are tarot cards and regular playing cards, a teacup, um, a sort of apothecary or, or a sort of chemistry type beaker with some mysterious thing in it, a couple light bulbs, uh, chicken egg shells and pearls. So that is one of the things that, that I saw this is, is sort of reflecting on um, a lot of are left with after um, after the revolution and after the special period and after the rectification movement and after uh, uh, after independence and after slavery. That is, there are a number of these elements that are on the table that. Uh, that they can use to figure out to divine their future, mm, how nice. we're going to win, what the future is, and that's 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 what I see. Um, that's what I see on this this cover is uh, you know I'm, I'm thinking of of that figure as a representative of all of my respondents, uh, queer uh, you know queer in various ways, mm-hmm. um, you know calmly and elegantly perhaps. Uh, Looking down and to see, you know, how we will win, where this larger freedom is going to come from. Mm-hmm. And beside that, I just think it's, I think it's gorgeous, and that's, you know, that is a reason in itself, <laughs> in, in my book. Um, but I, I would, I, I would completely concur. Yeah. So tell us what you're working on now. 
well, what am I working on now? I'm, I'm looking at my my desk now, and it it, it tells the, <laughs> it tells the story of what I'm working on now. Uh, but um, the major the major project that I'm working on now is a is a new is a new book project, which right now I'm calling Black Queer Here and There, and that has um, or, and the subtitle is Movement and Sociality in the Americas, and that has two parts. And one part uh, I'm doing case studies. Of uh, of activist organizations dealing with uh, sexual orientation uh, discrimination uh, in the Caribbean, uh, and in another part of the book, I'm talking about uh, travel. Uh, one chapter on on uh, upper middle class black men in tourism. Another one on on how uh, how the black body is framed in uh, in pornography. And in um, in pornography and in legitimate art mm. uh, by and uh, representing uh, queer black people, and um, another piece that is around um, around how how migration and travel is imagined in the works of of, of black queer uh, writers and activists and artists. So it's been a it's been a really um, a, a really fantastic uh, beginning to this this research to have spent time in the past couple of years in Barbados and Guyana and Brazil um, and also in uh, it says in the Americas but also in London uh, and uh, doing some archival work at the Schomburg also and so it's it's right now in in formation but. The, the questions that I'm that I'm I'm looking to answer is um, what what difference, uh, for example, um, queerness makes or or blackness makes in these struggles, uh, if any, and how uh, at play uh, black queer people uh, what we can learn from uh, from 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 travel and tourism, for example, um, what we can learn when we look at people who move back and forward between spaces in black diaspora instead of merely looking at um, at one space. Mm -hmm. When those uh, book projects come out, I hope to uh, have you back on the show uh, I would, to I would, discuss I would those. To. <laughs> well, thank you, Jafari Allen, for discussing Vincent Amos, The Erotics of Black Self-Making in Cuba, published by uh, Duke University Press. Um, and have a good day. Thank you so much. Take care. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today with Jafari S. Allen, the author of Vinceremos, The Erotics of Black Self-Making in Cuba, published by Duke University Press in 2011. What I personally gleaned from this lively and personable interchange with Jafari is that blackness is not merely located in the U.S., that it is diasporic and global, and that there is a connection among black politics around the world and that we should pay keen attention to it. So I hope that you will go out and get Vincent Amos, read it, teach it if you're a professor, and share it with your friends. <laughs>